Hi everyone, welcome to this week's episode of Ask the RD. I'm Laura, I'm a graduate student at UNC Chapel Hill studying public health and nutrition, and I'll have my RD at the end of 2013. And I'm Kelsey, a registered dietitian specializing in whole food ancestral diets, and I'm working on my master's in nutrition and functional medicine. Thanks for joining us for this week's Ask the RD podcast. We're excited to be here and we hope that you'll enjoy learning about nutrition-related topics. Remember to submit your nutrition-related questions through the online submission form, which we've linked to on Chris's site. We'll be answering your questions on the show, so feel free to submit as many as you want. As a reminder to everyone, this is just general advice and should not be used in place of medical advice from a licensed professional. So let's get started with our podcast. Kelsey, I think the first question that we have is for you. All right. Should I take probiotics on an empty stomach or with food? Excellent question. So first, I just want to talk a little bit about probiotic supplements in general and then move on to the crux of this question because I think a little bit of background information is useful here. First, it's really important to think about probiotics in terms of what strains you're introducing. And when I say strain, I don't just mean lactobacillus acidophilus. I mean lactobacillus acidophilus LA5. So that third letter, number, or name is really important. Um, Just saying lactobacillus acidophilus is just like saying dog, but what we're looking for is the particular breed of dog, which would be equivalent to that strain of bacteria. And the point being uh, that we're looking for something more specific. So once you know the actual strain of bacteria, You can look at research on it to see its survival in the gut and its specific effects on body systems. The reason I bring this up is because if you buy a supplement that doesn't specify that strain of bacteria, you really have no idea what the supplement is going to do because different strains have completely different effects on the body and completely different survival through the gastrointestinal tract. So I really only recommend supplement companies that are willing to disclose what strains their products can contain because that means that they did their research, saw that those are really good strains to be using, that they survive through the GI tract, and you know they're being used for a particular purpose and put them in a product. So if a supplement company doesn't disclose that information, to me, that means that either they don't know that strain is important or they know it's important and they don't put the best strain and and they don't put the most research strain in order to keep the price down. So they'll use, you know, just lack, a general lactobacillus acidophilus strain that they don't even know what it is because it's cheaper than lactobacillus acidophilus LA5 or some well-researched strain. Either way, you know, it, whether they don't know it's important or they know it's important and choose not to put it in there, It's not a company I want to buy from. So I just want to preface this conversation with that information because usually the strains they'll put in a supplement are going to be the ones that we know survive well in the GI tract and actually get where they're supposed to go, which is important when we're talking about when to take these supplements. If it's a good strain and it's known to be acid resistant and bile resistant, then it shouldn't matter too, too much when you take it, um, but we'll talk about what can kind of give you a little bit of edge when you're talking about when to take a particular probiotic supplement. So another thing to just keep in mind too is some of these companies will use general strains or they don't tell you the strain 
um, and they might try to convince you that their enteric coating will help them to survive through the GI tract. But it's usually just because they'll use something like that, which is an expensive process to not only drive up the price, but um, also just go around the fact that they're not using a well-researched strain that's known to be able to survive stomach acid and bile very well. So I want you to keep that all in mind as we're talking about this. And you definitely want to know that the probiotics you're taking have been studied and been shown to survive the long journey through the GI tract very well. So moving on to whether or not we should take probiotics with food or without, is it's, it's important to think about our ancestors here because if you think about them, our ancestors would have always had their probiotics with food because that's where the probiotics came from. They didn't have these nice supplement companies to isolate probiotics and put them in a little pill for us to take every day. It's just not how it works in nature. So um, I want to point that out first because there's not a ton of research on, the, on this topic, so you got to kind of think about the context behind this. And another thing to consider with our ancestors is things like sauerkraut or kimchi. They were usually used as condiments, so they were eaten with a meal usually it's not like you would just eat kimchi on its own it was part of a meal so think about that context as we start to talk about some of the research behind this as well so what you'll hear very often in blogs and you know if you just googled should i take probiotics on an empty stomach or not people will tell you to take probiotics on an empty stomach which is not something that i necessarily agree with uh, I think there might be some strains that survive just fine without a meal, but for the most part, research has shown that probiotics are better absorbed either about 30 minutes before a meal or with meals. So one study I looked at used a multi-strain product and used an in vitro model of the digestive system and compared different timings of meals and different meal types to the survival of the probiotics through the GI tract. And what they found was that their survival of the probiotics, like I said, was about was best about 30 minutes before or with the meal. And there were less bacteria that survived if the probiotics were given 30 minutes after a meal. They also compared the probiotic survival to which meal the digestive simulator was given, and the, the options were apple juice, water, or oatmeal with 1% milk. And what they found was that the survival was significantly better with the oatmeal. And the authors actually related that to the fat content, but I think that it's also important to note that oatmeal has some fiber um, and resistant starch, which would help, which would have helped survival as well. So I think that's important to think about when we're deciding when to take our probiotics. Like I said, if you have a really well-researched strain that's been known to survive really well with uh, stomach acid and bile, which are the two main killers of probiotic bacteria, then usually it can it can survive even if you do take it on an empty stomach. You might get a little bit less than you would if you took it with a meal, um, but overall it should be okay. What you want to think about here is that also when you're eating with a meal, you're usually getting some kind of prebiotic with your meal. So if you had something with you know a starch, like we said, like that study showed, the oatmeal was, was particularly helpful. And of course, oatmeal is not part of our usual diets on a paleo diet, but if you had something like a sweet potato or a potato, 
that would give you some of those prebiotic components with your probiotics to enhance survival. In a study on rats, they tested a few different strains of, of probiotics and the effect of different prebiotics on their survival and found that the different prebiotics actually helped different strains survive better. So some particular uh, strains of probiotics did better with um, FOS, which is fructooligosaccharide. Some did better with inulin, etc. Are some probiotic supplements, are they packaged with the prebiotics as well? Right, yeah, and that's called a symbiotic when, they're, when they have some prebiotic component in there. So I think that can be a good idea. I don't know how much more significantly it, it gives you an edge um, because with prebiotics, usually the, the biggest difference is shown uh, in like the gram levels of taking prebiotics. So for example, FOSS, that has been shown to be the most significant um, give you the most significant benefits at about 10 grams. So that's not what you're going to get in a supplement that's also packaged with probiotics. You're not going to get anywhere near right. there. Um, but that's not to say that it won't help to get those probiotics that are in there to where they're supposed to go and survive better. So I, I definitely don't think it's a bad idea for sure. Um, and I would probably suggest that over something that's just plain probiotics. But the issue with, with that sometimes is that a lot of the really good companies that are using really well-researched strains, I find that they don't tend to package them together because some people are really sensitive to prebiotics. So if you're FODMAP intolerant, you won't usually do well with FOSS, though the amount that they would probably put in a symbiotic, you might be able to tolerate just fine. So I think they, they usually will sell them separately in some cases just because of that. But if you're someone who's taking a prebiotic as well as your probiotics, it's just a good idea to take them together because it'll help the probiotics to survive, certainly. And if you can tolerate prebiotics, then definitely you know, consider a, a symbiotic product as long as you know that the, um, the probiotic strains are well-researched. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, I guess at that point, it might just be easier to get the probiotic strain that you know is good and then just add your own prebiotic right, right. to the mix. Exactly. So if, if your probiotic mixture that you have already, um, if it, as long as it's telling you the strains, of course, if it has some prebiotic in there, go for it. I think that's an excellent idea. It might not do a ton to help, but it's certainly not going to hurt anything. Um, and then the other thing to think about in terms of prebiotics and, and starch and everything is just to eat something, I would say it's a good idea if you eat starch on, on a regular basis to just take your probiotic when you're eating something starchy. So if that tends to be breakfast for you or after working out, I would say that's a good time to take your probiotic supplement because it'll help that survival. All said, I don't think it's the end of the world if for some reason you can't take your probiotics near when you eat food. Like I said, as long as it's a, a type, a strain of probiotic that's been shown to be bile and acid resistant, you should still get most of that probiotic um, benefit all the way into the intestine. Um, but most of us have the ability to eat or, or take our probiotics when we're going to eat. And I think that if we can do that, then it's beneficial to do so. And especially if, it, if it's a starchy meal. Um, Again, you should take your probiotics sometime within that half hour before you, he you eat because that's been shown to have the best survival of probiotics to where we want them to get. Um, 
And of course, if you're taking a prebiotic, that's an excellent time to take it as well because it'll help all those nice probiotics to survive. So does that all make sense? I know it's a little bit kind of complicated. I mean, I think it's it's pretty simple in my opinion. I mean, whether you take it on an empty stomach or not, I think you've explained to our listeners that whoever is telling them to take it on an empty stomach is probably not accurate. I'm actually right. not even sure what the what the idea behind taking it on an empty stomach is because it almost sounds like the food combination discussion we had where it's like, yeah. oh, if you take it on an empty stomach, there's not going to be acid or bile. And it's like, well, that stuff's still going to be there. It just, you know, won't be buffered by any food. So Right. And that's actually exactly the point. You want it to be buffered by food so that the bacteria survive better. Um, you know, if they're just exposed to plain stomach acid, that's going to do a lot to kill them. Um, so you want it to be buffered by food, which is part of why this makes sense. Yeah. And I mean, um, like you said before, I mean, just looking at it from a ancestral perspective, um, people were not eating probiotic, like anything just on its own. It was going to be yeah. that they were eating food that had been fermented or, you know, if, even if you go back farther, it's probably that they were eating food that had dirt on it or something, but they weren't just eating the dirt, you know? So right. um, there's really no natural situation where somebody would be taking in a lot of probiotics without there being some kind of food Yeah. in addition. So, I mean, I just think it's a little strange that people would recommend it if there's really no instance where that would be happening in yeah. nature. And I tried to find why people say that. Um, and what I found on most sites was that they say to take it with a glass of water because it gets to the intestines more quickly, which maybe that's true. But the fact that it's then exposed to that plain stomach acid, you know, that's not helpful either. You want it to be buffered by the food. So a lot of the sites were just like, it it helps it to survive better, which clearly is not the case. So I think the, the reasoning is a little vague, even to the people who are recommending to take them that way, um, which is definitely problematic. So you should know always why you're recommending someone take something a certain way. And it sounds like for a lot of people, they are either just, you know, taking the word of someone else and maybe don't really understand the reasoning behind it. Or, you know, they think that because it goes through quicker, it's it's better, which it's, is not the case because then it's just, it's not buffered by food like we've talked about. Right. And I mean, it could also be that people, you know how you're supposed to take antibiotics on a empty stomach? Well, some people might say, oh, well, if you need antibiotics on a empty stomach, then maybe probiotics need to be on the empty stomach too. And they're such different actions that um, they, they can't be compared. So Right. Yeah. So I think what I wanted to mention with this is really just that you should be making sure you're getting a good probiotic strain to begin with. Because if it's not a good probiotic strain, you have no idea whether it's going to survive well at all because there's been very little research on it. And the types of strains that good supplement companies will put in their products, they've been shown to be able to survive well the stomach acid and the bile. So in that case, it, sh it shouldn't make too much of a difference um, whether you take it with food or without food, but you'd probably even then still get a little bit of benefit from taking it with your food. Yeah. And unfortunately, the ones that are 
research supported are typically more expensive. Um, and I've had patients before that don't want to spend the extra money on their probiotics. So they'll end up just getting one of those little culturels or whatever. And I mean, cultural actually is a research strain. I will tell you that. (laughs) Well, (laughs) anyway, so, you know, as opposed to VSL number three or something like that, that has shown benefits for specific conditions, um, or they just, you know, they go out and buy Activia yogurt or something and think that that's going to do the trick. But um, I do think that it's worth spending a little more money on the ones that are more researched and also, I mean, I think cultural is like, what, one type of bacteria? Yeah, I think it's Lactobacillus rhamnosus GG, if I remember correctly. <laughs> I wouldn't know. I'm not, I'm not a probiotic expert the way you are, but um, I... I think that one of the things about probiotics that is helpful is to have um, a variety of strains. So, you know, if you're only taking the culturel and that's it, then you're not going to be getting the the different types of strains that have different purposes. So um, I think that, you know, if you're going to go the route of taking a probiotic, then it's worth spending maybe a little more money than just getting, you know, even like a brand X at Walmart or something because mm-hmm. it's yeah I will say that um in general for healthy people who are just trying to keep up the good bacteria in their gut yes a, a broad spectrum product is probably a good idea that has a few different strains but the reason some of the products have only one strain is because they're used for particular things so Floristore for example that's um Saccharomyces boulardii. Yeah, boulardii and Biocodex is the um, is the strain. So Saccharomyces uh, boulardii Biocodex is the full name, and that's a particular strain that's been shown to you know help get rid of other bad guys right. in the gut. So it's it's used particularly for that, um, and also for C diff and and other infections like so that. So is actually, I'm sure you you know, but um, for our listeners, it's a yeast and not a bacteria. So, um, you know, th- in that case, that's completely different than a single strain bacteria. Right. So even things though like the Culturel product with the um, Rhamnosus GG. Or a line, which I'm forgetting the actual bacteria in there, but it's again a one-strain product. They're used for different. Um, they're, they're used for different things, so pr- they're better for particular conditions than other strains are. So that's the reason for sometimes having a single-strain product. They could certainly put it in with other strains, but for whatever reason, they tend not to. So you kind of have to take it separately unless you can find a product with that particular strain that's packaged with a few other strains, but at least for the one in Cultural GG, um, I don't know if they make a product that has more than just that strain, but I'll have to look into that. But that's the reason why, is sometimes you just want one particular strain for a particular purpose, and that's when it's useful to use one of those because you're you're looking for that particular strain and a lot of other commercial products maybe won't have it. So for when you're um, recommending probiotics to your patients, how, like, do you normally do the one strain or do you normally do one that's multi-strain? It depends. Um, for someone who, you know, maybe just has dysbiosis and we're just trying to fix that, I'll usually do one with a, a few different strains. But if we're doing something um, 
in particular like trying to deal with a, a particular condition i have a whole chart of what strains are useful for what conditions oh, wow. so then yeah so then i'll use that to determine a particular probiotic if i think it will be useful in that particular case interesting i might need you to send me that <laughs> yeah it's a good little chart i got it from from school actually yeah see unfortunately this this is one of those things that we don't talk about in normal dietetic programs, which is a shame because it's obviously something that could be very helpful for people. And um, it's, I was always under the impression that the more variety, the better, just because you're getting, you know, the different strains that would normally be found in a probiotic food. But uh, I'll, I'll need to. Right. And, that and in general, like for healthy people, that does make more sense. Um, but when you're trying to deal with a specific condition, just to get extra benefit, you want to use particular strains that have been researched to be useful against those conditions. Well, now I'm glad yeah. you talked about it because I actually wasn't aware of that. Um, yeah, it's an interesting topic yeah, for sure. Like I knew I knew Floristore was effective against C. diff, um, and you know we, I actually have recommended that multiple times in the hospital I worked at. But um, you know we don't we don't usually get to even recommend specific types of probiotics. So, you know, it's uh, it's very limited in the hospital environment or even in a typical medical environment that you can actually get that level of detail about what strains you're using. But um, Right. And I think that's, that's part of the issue is because I, I think most people just don't realize that probiotics and their effects are absolutely strain specific. Um, and that's just such an important thing to remember when you're deciding what strains to take because one strain might be totally useless for you while another one could be really, really beneficial. Right. Yeah, I was always under the impression that it was just more about amount of CFU, so coliform forming units, and then a greater variety. So, Right. And the coliform forming units, those are important too. There's a you know, certain number that you need to take in order for it to be beneficial. So if you're taking a low amount, then yeah, it's not, it's, even if it's been shown to be useful for a certain condition, and if you're not taking the required dose, then it's, it's not going to be useful for you either. So that is important to consider. And when you're healthy, that's why, you know, um, things like yogurt or other fermented foods, there's tons of different bacteria in there. And that's, it's useful for healthy people just to continue getting, probiotics on a regular basis because as we know they're they don't really colonize for a long time in the gut they're very transient um, but still very useful so in that case for healthy people yeah a big amount of bacteria is a good idea different types of strains cool. well maybe we'll have to do a whole show on uh, the different strains of probiotics that you recommend for different conditions I mean I feel like that would be really helpful for some people including me who I feel a little silly that I didn't know that there was information about specific bacterial types for specific conditions. I mean, I, I think people don't talk about it enough, honestly. And that's why a lot of people don't know that because we just, yeah, we just think that, okay, as long as I'm getting a bunch of bacteria, a bunch of different strains, then I should be okay, which is correct for most healthy people. But when you're dealing with sick people with particular conditions that you want to be working with, then yeah, that's when the strains become important. Interesting. All right. Well, I don't want to, you know, run this too long. We'll definitely have to do a show on bacterial strains since I'm sure there'll be a lot of interest after this show. But um, I guess we should move on to the next question so we have enough time to get through both of them. Yes. All right. And this is for you, Laura. 
Okay. What do you think about the eating for your blood type diet? Okay, so before I share my opinion on the blood type diet, I'm going to describe what the diet is since I'm sure some of our listeners may not actually be familiar with the diet. The blood type diet is based on the premise that we all have different ABO blood types that affect what our bodies recognize as self versus other through the presentation of antigens to the immune system. So we generally all know our own blood type, or at least we should know our own blood type, and our blood type mainly determines the type of blood we can accept from transfusions based on the antigens present on our blood cells. So there are two types of antigens, A and B. Our bodies produce antibodies against any of the antigens that are not present on our blood cells. So if you have type A blood, that means you have type A antigens and anti-B antibodies. So if you have type O blood, that means you have no antigens and you have both anti-A and anti-B antibodies. But if you have type AB like I do, you have both type of antigens and no antibodies in your blood. So the reason why this is important during blood transfusions is because you can only accept blood types that do not have the antigen for which you have an antibody. So A types can only take type A and type O. AB types can take any of the blood, so A, B, AB, and O. And type O can actually only take O blood. And the positive and negative refer to the Rh protein, which affects whether you can take the blood as well. So if you get the wrong type of blood, your immune system attacks the new blood cells and lyses them, which causes rapid destruction of the donor red blood cells and can either lead to acute renal failure or even death in some, in some conditions. So this is why type AB positive blood is known as the universal acceptor and type O negative is the universal donor. Since AB positive can take any type of blood and O negative can be used as blood for anyone. So you inherit your blood type from your parents and each parent has two copies of the gene and give one to you. So in my case, I believe my mom is type A and my dad is type B, so they each gave me one of their A and B genes and that's how I ended up being an AB. So the theory behind this diet is that each blood type can be traced back to a certain type of ancestral background And the guy who came up with this diet is named Dr. Peter Diadamo. I'm actually not sure how to pronounce his last name, but um, we'll just go with Diadamo. Um, And he groups each blood type into a common ancestry with a specific diet recommendation. So the book that he's written is called Eat Right for Your Type, and the four is a number four. And the claim here is that each ABL blood type processes food differently. And following a diet specific to your AB a, B, or O blood group may improve your health, general well-being, and energy levels and reduce your risk of developing chronic diseases like cancer and cardiovascular disease. So the book is based on a theory that each blood type contains the genetic message of the diets and behaviors of our ancestors and that these traits still have an impact on us today. And blood type O is described by Diodamo as a hunter. Um, he recommends that those of this blood type eat a higher protein diet. Blood type A is called the agrarian or cultivator and is recommended to eat a diet that emphasizes vegetables and is actually free of red meat, which is a diet that's more closely vegetarian. Blood type B is called the nomad, and Dr. Diodamo says that this type is associated with a strong immune system and a flexible digestive system, and that people of blood type B are the only people that can thrive on dairy products. 
And he calls blood type AB the enigma, which is, you know, yeah, well, I, apparently I'm an enigma, so that's interesting. But this group's diet is actually a mix between type A and type B. Um, so now that I've described the basics of this diet theory, we can actually talk about the evidence for the diet or the lack thereof. Um, there's some evidence to suggest that different blood types have different susceptibility to certain diseases like heart attacks, pancreatic cancer, and stroke. But as far as the diet goes, there's really no concrete evidence that this diet works the way Diodamo says it does. And there was actually a really good study that came out in May that searched for blood type diet studies that fit a screening criteria for legitimacy, such as only using in vivo human studies, which means um, you know actually experimenting with human subjects. And they actually didn't find one single study that met their criteria and showed an association between ABO blood type diets and health-related outcomes. So there was really only one study that even met all the criteria, and it didn't show any health benefits. Um, yeah, so I'll link to this study in the show notes so people can read it for themselves. But unfortunately, it shows that there's really no evidence to support this diet theory. And now, I know lack of evidence isn't evidence against, but I really think this concept is silly if you think about it. Um, blood types are distributed amongst the different countries of the world and are not really associated with one type of eating pattern. So to suggest that a person would benefit in any, um, in any way from eating in a way that has been somewhat arbitrarily dis, uh, assigned to their blood type, it doesn't really make any sense to me from a scientific standpoint. Yeah, plus if you think about like families in general, wouldn't you all have to be eating different types of diets because... Well, that's, yeah, I mean, that's a really good point. I mean, just like I mentioned before, my mom is a type A and my dad is a type B and I'm type AB. So, I mean, in Dr. Diadamo's perspective, we all three should be eating different diets. Right, which, like completely different diets. Yeah, well, at least my parents should be eating completely different diets, and then mine, mine being the enigma and all, uh, I could eat a combination of what my parents eat. But Interesting. Yeah, and I mean, as far as like ethnicity goes, my parents' ethnicity is similar. Um, they're all, like my whole family's from like the German or Germany, Austria, Hungary, and Ireland areas of Europe. So it's not mm -hmm. like one of my parents is Chinese and one of them is, right. you know, English. It's, you know, they're, they're very similar in ethnicity and they have different blood types. So, um, I just feel like, you know, it doesn't really make sense that we would be eating differently in any normal situation in life. Right. Um, and this book came out in, I think, 1996. So I feel like at this point, if if it was a valid diet, that there should be some amount of research conducted to back it up. So, I mean, really, at the end of the day, I feel like personal experience is going to tell you way more about a diet's appropriateness for you than something like a blood type assignment. And um, I mean, for me, it's, it's really hard for me to know if any of these blood type diets would be helpful because being an AB, it's... I mean, it really doesn't even give me any explanation as to what right, I should be Right, you can kind of eat whatever you want. Right, so except for, I guess it's an AB, so I guess lacto-vegetarian would be ideal, but um, yeah, I don't really necessarily think that's right. Do you know which which type? I'm B, so what would that? The nomad, so you have a flexible digestive system and you would thrive on dairy products. 
Hmm. Okay, that's interesting because I don't do well on dairy products. <laughs> <laughs> I can eat some, but yeah, like fluid milk or even yogurt gives me issues. So yeah. interesting. Yeah. So there you go. I mean, just based on your experience, it's not necessarily an accurate description. Yeah. And um, it's ironic because I think that like type O tends to be a more rare blood type. And this one is the one that I think kind of more closely resembles a paleo diet. So I don't know. I just feel like the fact that most people that do paleo tend to do better than they were doing on like, say, a vegetarian diet. Um, I doubt that these are all people that are type O blood types. Um, maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. We could take a poll and yeah, see. Yeah, we need to do a poll apparently. <laughs> yeah, and see like what people's blood types are. But um, like I said, type O is not that common because it's um, your blood type is actually a dominant trait. So if you get an A and an O as far as your genes, then you're going to be an, a type A. Mm-hmm. And so the only way you can be a type O is if you get both O's from your parents. Um, so O is like almost the way blue eyes are, where if you get a blue and a brown gene, then you end up being brown. Right. So if your parents are – unless your parents are both O's or if they're AO or BO and then they just so happen to give you both O's, it's actually not that common to get O as your blood type. So um, I don't think AB is that common either, but it's I think a little – actually, it's probably the same level of commonality just because of the way genetics work. But – Type A and type B are definitely more common than type O for sure. Mm-hmm. So anyway, I mean, I, I'm open to hearing if anyone has evidence to support this diet. I didn't find any in this one study that was c- conducted just in the last six months didn't find any. So um, yeah, I mean, I think the the most of the evidence is coming from Diadamo having clinical evidence or anecdotal evidence that his patients do well. But I mean, honestly, a lot of this could just be that they're paying attention to their diet when they might have not been doing so before. Right. I mean, if you're coming from a standard American diet and even going to vegetarian or lacto-vegetarian, you're probably going to be doing a lot better than you were before. Yeah. And I mean, that's usually the reason why vegetarianism is associated with things like lower BMI and um, just healthier outcomes is because people who are vegetarian compared to the average omnivore, they're focusing on eating a certain way. Right. So I think there is evidence that just paying attention to your diet for any reason is enough to make you healthier than someone who doesn't care what they're eating. Exactly. That's a really good point. So I feel like this blood type thing, like I would think, and this is just my theory, but I would think that a big part of it is just that people go from eating whatever they want to eating in a way that they think is healthier for them. And I mean, there's something to be said for the placebo effect. If you're eating a diet that you think is better for you, you're probably going to feel better on it than if you're eating in a way that you think is bad. Right. And usually when people are changing their diet, they're changing other lifestyle factors as well to make themselves healthier. Maybe they're getting more sleep. They're exercising more. So there's a lot of other healthy behaviors that go along with changing your diet to be healthier, quote unquote, in whatever way you're choosing. Right. So... Um, Kelsey and I will, would always agree with Chris in that people need to figure out what diet works for them. And there's really no better way to do it than self-experimentation. Um, fortunately, Chris's book that's coming out in December is going to focus very closely on this, uh, this strategy. So um, figuring out how to eat 
in a way that makes you feel the best. Really, you need to be doing personal experimentation and not just kind of arbitrarily saying, oh, I'm a type B, so that means I should eat a lot of dairy products. Because like you said, I mean, you don't do so well on tons of dairy. So if you were just following this blood type diet, you might actually do worse. Right. I I would imagine I would do a lot worse. Yeah. So... Um, so that's my opinion on the blood type diet. I think, Kelsey, you would agree with me in this yeah, case. Yeah, I really just think, first of all, like you said, there's just not a lot of research to back it up. And like you said, not, doesn't mean it doesn't work, but I think there are some other factors that we discussed that just paying attention to what you're eating and changing other lifestyle factors coming from a standard American diet, you're certainly going to feel better. So that's probably where that anecdotal clinical experience is coming from for uh, this doctor that wrote the book. Right. And if you just look at the recommendations, I mean, so if you're type O and they say, oh, eat more protein, like you're probably going to do better anyway, because we, we know that most people do better on a somewhat higher protein diet just because of, you know, the way that most people are eating normally. They're not necessarily eating a good amount of protein and protein enhances satiety and helps build lean muscle and all that. So, Um, So people that switch to the O diet are probably going to do better than they might have been doing before. And then even looking at blood type A, which is the sort of vegetarian red meat avoidance diet, that one is like he's recommending more vegetables. So eating more vegetables is probably going to be an improvement in a diet compared to the way a lot of normal people eat. And then, I mean, the the dairy thing – you know, some people do actually thrive on dairy products. So yeah, Chris is an example. He, he always talks about that. Right. So I think like some of these diets might actually be just general improvements over what people are normally eating and, you know, eating more protein or eating more vegetables or eating good quality dairy products. Like, I don't think anyone would argue that this is not a good way to improve your diet. So the fact that it's blood group based, I think is a little bit hokey, Um, you know. Right. And maybe just a little bit arbitrary. It doesn't really matter as long as you're paying attention and eating more vegetables or more dairy, if that's great for you or more protein, you're probably going to be doing a lot better than you were before. Right. So um, like I said, if anyone knows of research to support this diet, then please feel free to share it in the comments. Yeah, we're all ears. Right. But as far as what I could find and apparently what these researchers could find on any like actual evidence to support this diet, there really isn't any. So, um, so yeah, that's pretty much what I would like to say about the blood type diet. And who knows, maybe in five years, we'll have some really great study that's actually tested it and shows that it's got a benefit to it. But as of right now, I can't find any reason to follow it in a way that's, you know, right. too strict or anything like that. Yeah, and again, personal experience is going to trump any of that. these just blanket diets, even if it is somewhat uh, based on different factors like blood type or any other kind of diet that's for a particular kind of person personal experience is always going to be best because it's based on you. Yeah. And I mean, this even goes for just like strict paleo. I don't think a lot of people necessarily feel great doing what they would consider to be strict paleo. So, I mean, you know, right for a long period of time. Yeah. Right. So I don't know. I think I really feel like personal experimentation is, at this point, the only way to know for sure if a diet is good for you. So Absolutely. I maybe, agree. Yeah, maybe in like 20 years we'll have some kind of 
blood tests that you can get done that will tell you exactly what you should eat. But as of right now, we don't. So Right. Gotta just experiment. Yeah. And I know it's not usually what people want to hear, but unfortunately, that's just the way things are. So yeah. If somebody wants to invent that blood test, they, they, they'll probably be a millionaire. But uh, as of right yeah. now, don't, <laughs> we don't have it. So anyway, so that's I guess that's all I wanted to talk about with the blood type diet. Did you want to add anything? No, I think you brought up all the important points there. And at the end of the day, it's about experimentation. Right. So, okay. Well, that's all the questions we have for this week, everyone. So thanks again for joining us on this episode of Ask the RD. We hope you enjoyed the show and we would love any feedback that you have on how we can make our podcasts even better. And as a reminder, you can submit your nutrition-related questions through the link that we've provided on Chris's website. And who knows, we might answer your question on the next show. So have a great week, everyone, and we'll see you next time. All right. Take care, Laura. You too, Kelsey.